I'm Dr. Future, your host. I invite you to join me as together we experience a future quake. 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 Show. I'm Dr. Future. And I'm Tom, just rolling with the punches, bionic. Yeah, I can understand that. Mm-hmm. Been having a quite a roller coaster ride. It's been pretty wild the last, last couple few weeks. days, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, it's great to be back with you for another Future Quake show this week. We appreciate every single Futurian out there that takes time out of your really busy schedule mm-hmm. and with a whole lot better shows out there. For some reason, you choose to minister us by listening to our show. Yes. And we appreciate you every week for doing mm-hmm. that and the stuff that you share with us, the things you learn from the Lord. And uh don't know why you listen we to don't, us. I was going to say, we don't know why here. you do it, but we're glad that you're here. Even if it's pity, we're glad to have you here uh-huh. for that sake. Yep. Uh, you you want to give a shout-out to somebody? Right yeah, now? I want to I want to thank Brother Gaz Parker, who really ministered to me today in a pretty, pretty awesome way. Yeah? Uh, he's off there in one of... Uh, one of the uh, the Queen's lands there. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, not sure which one, but... In the know. Commonwealth. Yeah, somewhere in the Commonwealth. Yeah. And um, he was just, he was really cool. Yeah. He was a really good guy. A lot yeah. of people have been ministering to me the last couple yeah. of days. Brother Paul out in Texas. Yeah. Um, he's pretty, he's pretty wacky, man. He's yeah. like, just over there going crazy. You'll be seeing him soon. Not sure what to make of him. Yeah. Yeah. Um. Oh, in a good way, though. In, in a good way. Yeah. And then, um, and then, uh, you know, Brother Tim out there really ministering to me too. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, Brother Victor up there in up there in uh, Northern Illinois, hmm. uh, calling me too. And uh, so it's been cool, man. Man, you know, the one thing about when you're having difficult times mm-hmm. is that that is the time when you get to get ministry. Yeah. To you. Mm-hmm. I know you're still ministering to a ton of people yourself. In fact. Some other people have a lot of thanks to give to you or to give the Lord through you from your ministry just in the last week that yeah. I know of. You know what's Some funny? like big-time life impacts yeah. that your intervention had a big big thing into. I won't get into it. Yeah, but, don't. <laughs> but in the, in the middle of your – I mean, we've talked about this before your work show. Right now yeah. you're between jobs and uh-huh. needing to find something quick. And um, But in the middle of that, you had a you know just one of your many opportunities that I know of was to minister in a big way. Mm-hmm. With some folk who needed something urgent, mm-hmm. and uh, that's sort of how life in the community of Christ is, isn't it? Yeah, it's funny, man. I feel like, you know, something you said to me at, in Branson, and I didn't really—I thought it was pretty sappy, but I'll repeat it like here. Like most of the stuff I say, <laughs> or stupid, yeah. ignorant. Whatever. I was—I was lamenting my—I was lamenting all the stuff going on with me, and you said, you know, your life may be a maybe. Uh, an upheaval, but you know, as you pinball around, you're ministering to all sorts of people, and yeah. it's like you know, it's pretty. It is. It's pretty much true. Mm-hmm. Starting to see. So it's like my favorite chapter in the Bible, Psalm 84, talks about the pilgrims when they go through the desert, mm-hmm. desert of Baca, I think it is. They make it a place of springs. Uh-huh. And you may be going through that desert right now in some parts of your life, mm-hmm. but you still make it springs to the people who are walking behind you. Yeah. Cool. And that's what it's all supposed to be about, what we're all supposed to be doing in the middle of it. Because mm-hmm. I know there's a lot of people hurting in our future Quake audience as well, too, mm-hmm. uh, in the same kind of way. And we, they need that same kind of help, too. Well, give me a call. Message me on Facebook, and we'll pray together. Okay. 
Yeah. That's you heard it, everybody. They yeah. He's uh, giving you, you got, the if offer. If you got problems, I don't know if I can fix them, but I can pray with you about them. Well, so, and, and I'll me on Facebook, Tom Bionic. There's only one of those on Facebook, as far as I know. Okay, so they won't find multiple faces then, and well, have to figure maybe out which like, one. I don't know. No, I don't think so. Okay. Um, well, let, let me mention. Um, I, I talked to a brother Matt last week, who um, uh, was looking for some friends in Springfield to meet. That was a cool. This is cool and, too. And uh, you know, he's getting around in a wheelchair and limited mobility, but uh-huh. sharp guy, really sharp, fun. You and I really enjoyed mm-hmm. talking to him. And some of our Futurian friends have already stepped up and said, hey, we'd like to, we're in the area, we'd like to meet up with him. And I think that offer's still open. Uh, this was just in the last day or so I heard of someone uh, wanting to contact Brother Matt. So if you're in the Springfield, Missouri area, uh, anywhere in the greater area, and you'd like to get with somebody who's a fellow Futurian, that could sure use a fellow friend. And most of our listeners out there are sometimes feel like lone wolves. Where nobody really wants mm-hmm. to talk about the stuff like we talk about on our show. Yep. Um, and it's good for us to find each other. Yep. Now, we we all have to tolerate each other once we do, just like you and I have to tolerate mm-hmm. each other, as different as we are. So uh, you'll find things you have in common and things different, but uh, it's it's worth it to have those relationships. And so mm-hmm. I just want to thank uh, our friends who are, are actually stepping forward for that. And, and also just mention to you real quick, we mentioned it last week, uh, check out the Future Quake South Africa show. Yep. It's, uh. I have Kaya or something. Have you, have you been to it? I, I've seen it and I listened to about half an episode and then I lost my internet connection. They're working oh, on the lines of where I'm staying. Isn't it interesting? Yeah. Listen it's cool. To it. I like it. Exotic is the yeah. word I would use. But it's, uh, D, the Malaprop or something. He said he does false flag events. He uh. goes into places and impersonates being an American. <laughs> It says something like that. Yeah, I, I, only, I heard about it third hand, but I, I could have this totally wrong. So if I do, yeah. I'm sorry. But, but that's a good story, nevertheless. Yeah, he was yeah. like somebody said he goes in and like, oh, okay, I'll have a cherry coke. And like we don't we don't have cherry coke. It's like, yeah. Well, okay, I'll have a uh, I'll have a Dr Pepper. <laughs> yeah, I remember that. Dr Pepper. Yeah, I remember. That. Yeah. Well, check them out. They're they're really cool folk. It's fqsouthafrica.co.za. Mm-hmm. And they'll be having some guests coming up um, in the weeks ahead, mm-hmm. some people you may know uh, coming up. So mm-hmm. be sure and check that out. And I, I want to uh, I want to thank Brother John in Australia mm-hmm. who made a donation to our show this week mm-hmm. and will help us get some materials that we'll be using here on Future Quake here mm-hmm. very soon. And I want to thank you for that, Brother John, very, very much. And uh, also I want to pray for Brother Terry. Brother Terry is a gentleman who did some artwork, and Brother Bob, one of our local Futurians here, made some little bumper stickers, mm-hmm. and we're going to figure out some ways to get out. They're little small ones. I like the little oval ones like you stick on your windshield when your car's been moved by the military from some country or another, you mm-hmm. know, a little oval ones. There's some future quick ones. One of them has a neat little artwork on it that I think we're going to try to get some T-shirts made. Sweet. It is some very unique uh, artwork. But anyway, Brother Terry was involved in that, and... um just want to know if you would pray uh, for his wife, Lisa. She's got a very important interview coming up and is waiting to hear back on an interview for a job where they'd relocate. Mm-hmm. And I would like to extend it to Lisa. And also, if you know of anybody else, Brother Tom, who's out of work and needs work. I don't know if you know of anybody. but Me. Oh, Just, okay. Yeah. You. Okay. I mean, um, besides me? Or? I would say probably 60% of the future Quake audience. I would say, what was what, what was that one that, that we read who, where the people were staying in a, in a, like a park or something? Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. Pray for those guys. Well, they seem really up on it, though. Yeah, 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 yeah. I know what you're talking about, yeah. But, you know, uh, I would guess probably at least 60% of the Futurians are out of work at any one particular period of time. Yeah. We're not really like the investment banker crowd. No, no. If we were the investment banker crowd, we'd have to put, you know, bombs on people's necks like that, that investment banker in Louisville did. Yeah, the, these are Australia. these are the kind of people that most of your big parachurch organizations are not going to pursue because there's not enough, you know. If they only knew how generous they are, though, mm-hmm. uh, you know, they'd look at their income level and say, well, gee, there's there's not much to pick from there. But the Futurian audience is some of the most generous people That's to what, each other, to us, but also you, to each you other. You better believe it, man. And um, But they need intervention. We need prayer. So yeah. I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray for Lisa. And for Tom and for everybody else out there, if you don't mind, so please mm-hmm. just join me real quick for yep. a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we just come before you with uh, an urgent need, Lord, for a, a lot of us in the brethren here that are together mm-hmm. in our family. Lord, I pray for Lisa. I pray that she'd hear a good word on a job. Uh, if it's your will, Lord, it requires a relocation for their family, Lord, but if this would... If this would work out, Lord, I just sure pray that it that it would. I pray for Brother Tom over here. I know our our listeners are also praying for him as well. That um, he's he's hustling really hard on several different leads, but Lord, sometimes it feels like you're pushing a string, and you just cannot mm-hmm. keep things moving forward, Lord, when uh, you're living off savings and things like that. And I, I I thank you, Lord, on his behalf for some even some Futurians who have stepped mm-hmm. forward to bless Brother Tom. Uh, as he blesses other people on a, on a lifestyle basis, Lord. Um, but I ask you, Lord, that you would work things as, as expeditiously as possible to find him the right kind of place where he can find some people to minister to there, Lord. Lord, I pray for all of our, our Futurians that are between jobs, need, need better pay, need mm-hmm. a better job, something more stable, something that maybe has a better home life or less travel or whatever it might be, Lord. I pray that you meet this very real need. Mm. Lord, these people are so good. We hear so many great stories of how they're blessing other people around them. And, Lord, I just pray that you bless them in this manner. And mm-hmm. we, we pray that by praying this communally that there will be great power in it, Lord, and, and great influence. And that uh, you would see us, Lord, as a persistent widow coming before you. And that uh, you would move and act. And, Lord, we know that there's much we can learn through our struggles even without a job and things like this, Lord, that they're things you teach us. But we just pray that this time you would you would provide this for us. Mm-hmm. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Well, it's story time. It's story time just on like the show. Just like the little kitty show. Time. Sit down, kids. It's time for story time. Uh, would you like to begin with a story or would you want me to kick it off? I would like you to kick it off. You sure? My friend, yes. You choose to defend... You'll take that into the stadium. To receive, yeah. Okay, all right. Take a little drink of my fluoridated water mm-hmm. here and uh, share a story. This is one some people may not like, but you know, um, I've been on this kick a little bit. And I was doing this research on this whole Dominionism thing and Knight of Malta and these mm-hmm. other organizations. I've only shared a little bit on our show. The people who saw my talk on Holy War. Mm-hmm. Got to see a lot more of it, but still not everything I got. Um, but one thing I've been doing is looking at these organizations, and now I've figured out how to look up their tax forms. If they have something that's like a nonprofit or mm-hmm. something like that, like Institute for whatever, whatever. And um, so now I've been able to find these forms and find out 
who's who's on their board, who's their staff, how they get paid, and boy, you get eye-opening information. I mean, mm-hmm. it's stuff that really can shock you. Who's associated with what group and this and that. And I've just started tapping that. But there's a um, gentleman here who had a uh, an article. It's on antiwar.com, and um, he talks about a, a group that's probably the biggest funded and most um, impactful uh, public interest group or political action committee on Capitol Hill, mm-hmm. and that's APAC, uh, the yep. American Israel Public Affairs Committee. I got a whole bunch of emails from them. Well, not from them, but yeah, about them yeah. this week. Yeah. And this is a t- sensitive topic for Christians here because have a large degree of support for Israel, mm-hmm. but they're a foreign government that probably has more influence than any of our other political action committees. But mm-hmm. this is a, the story says, uh, does APAC only have two donors, two major donors? Uh, mystery unfolds as members of Congress head to Israel. Uh, it says a large congressional delegation is heading for Israel. During three weeks of recess, 55 Republicans and 26 Democrats will enjoy, quote, educational trips Funded by the American Israel Education Foundation, mm-hmm. a tax-exempt nonprofit located in Washington, D.C. building as the American Israel Public Affairs Committee, APAC. Mm-hmm. Uh, absent APAC's influence on pro-Israel campaign contributors, members of Congress would probably skip international travel this year to meet the pressing needs of, the dist- of their districts or to venture to places of actual importance to the U.S., such as Europe, China, or Latin America. Instead, because APAC is always watching members of Congress, our representatives go to Israel. But this raises an important question. Who really is behind APAC? Now, I don't mean to pick on APAC. It's just that uh, um, this is a person who's done some similar research that I'm starting to do now mm-hmm. about who's really funding and running these <coughs> groups. And this is the big kahuna. Mm-hmm. So the, he, he finds some interesting things out here. He says, APAC's last IRS list of contributors claims the organization now has only two major donors. And he lists that uh, a PDF file there of the IRS list. Um, he says, as a tax-exempt 501c4 organization, a category intended for civic leads, social welfare organizations, and local associations of employees, APAC files an IRS Form 990. APAC has long structured its physical year-end in such a way that it languidly files two-year-old data while other nonprofits are rushing to report their previous year. Therefore, I'm sure it's the way they structure their tax year. Mm-hmm. Uh, therefore, the APAC Form 990 listed as year 2010 at GuideStar.org um, is actually year 2009 data. It also lacks the most important data in Form 990, which is donor contributions. And um, they have the links here, and I'll have a link of this story up at our on our website mm-hmm. on the show, so you can actually look at the actual files yourself if you're interested. It says, unlike the far more numerous nonprofit 501c3 organizations, which have to continuously means test that they have a wide public funding base in order for contributor donates, donations to be tax deductible, contributions to 501c4 organizations such as APAC which actively lobbies Congress, the executive, and numerous government agencies, are not tax-deductible. There are no contribution limits to 501c4 nonprofit groups. Individuals, foreign nationals, partnerships, associations, and other organizations may contribute whatever they like to a 501c4. Given APEC's oversized clout in U.S. Middle East policy, it's always informative to, to see just how many people are giving and how much. 
When APAC's founder, Isaiah Kennan, was dispatched in the early 1950s from his job at the Israeli Ministry of Foreign Affairs with orders to lobby the U.S. Congress for guns and diplomatic support as an American rather than the U.S. State Department as an Israeli foreign agent. Mm-hmm. Okay, that was their strategy, basically, to work through America as Americans. Okay, it was supposed to be only a six-month gig. As that operation morphed into a semi-permanent Washington institution run outside the normal purview of the Foreign Agents Registration Act office, APAC was forced to tap a very small base of wealthy donors, some with criminal records, while simultaneously receiving covert support from the quasi-governmental Jewish agency in Jerusalem. After that conduit, foreign funding ruse was uncovered by the Justice Department investigation. Kennan emerged from the crisis and slowly built back up APAC's donor base, whipping up post-1967 Six-Day War donor fears and anxieties that Israel was in danger of being overrun if people didn't send in their checks. Now, mm-hmm. APAC is pushing largely the same Israel in danger emotional buttons with Iran as a flashing red light. Obviously, this is their opinion here. APAC's schedule of donors doesn't appear on GuideStar. The IRS won't release it for any organization except by special request. Only then will the IRS send a Schedule B of contributors with all $5,000-plus contributors' names, but not through donations censored. Hmm. Okay, so the names are censored. If the breadth of APAC's funding base is a leading indicator of APAC's popular support, it is America that should now be deeply worried that APAC is catering to drastically fewer and possibly much more extreme voices. Yeah, mm-hmm. Here's mm-hmm. why. Two of them. Yeah. Specifically. Okay. Does APAC, okay, uh, for fiscal year 2006, APAC's top contributor gave $650,000. Good piece of money. Mm-hmm. The rest of APAC's Schedule B donors gave an average of $16,772 each. The list of $5,000 plus donors numbered just over 1,700 individuals, so numerous that APAC had to attach a separate spreadsheet to its return. This large group of donors represented the majority, or 56%, of APAC's total claim direct public support. If we assume APAC had approximately 50,000 paying members that year, the rest gave $464 each for a total of $50,920,000 in public support. It's hmm. a pretty a good chunk of change. Yeah, it? at least they got it from a variety of sources. Right. According to the special IRS release of APAC's 2009 schedule, there were only two $5,000 or plus donors. Only two of them, given 5000 or more. Huh. Donor number one gave $48,842,187. Million, $48 million well, we can be sure it wasn't me. It wasn't you. That's one donor. Yeah. Now, that may be one individual or one group, okay, Mm -hmm. but one. Donor two chipped in 13,503,472. This means that small donors contributed only 2.2 million for a total 2009 public support of 64.6 million. Okay? Hmm. So, of that 64, 2.2 came from everybody else and you know roughly 60 yeah over 62 million of that 64 million came from two people two entities 
The IRS confirms that there is no additional 2009 spreadsheet attachment of donors. APAC is now telling the IRS that it has two meaningful donors. There have been many reasons for smaller givers to bail out on APAC, leaving a pair of committed donors to carry all the weight. APAC, like any corporation, wants to chart a steadily increasing line of total revenues because any crisis-driven decline could weaken its brand and perceived power. That's true for any of those PACs. Mm-hmm. But the years since 2006 have been rocky. Two former APAC officials narrowly escaped a long-awaited espionage prosecution. Wow. Yeah, which was mysteriously tossed out by the Obama administration in 2009 after years of pretrial escalation. Many APAC donors probably did not have the stomach or risk tolerance to donate to an organization that nurtured and then threw overboard top employees in order to save itself from an espionage indictment. In 2009, former APAC official Stephen Rosen noisily filed a $20 million defamation lawsuit against APAC and its board of directors. Okay, that's a former official of APAC did. Mm -hmm. 2009 uh, marked the year an ongoing campaign was launched to to have APAC return to its roots by re-registering as an agent of the Israeli Ministry of Foreign Affairs. So, in other words, it re-identified itself with what it really was originally connected to the Israeli government. Rather than continue to operate as a domestic domestic American lobby and social welfare organization. Now, as I understand it, if they went back through that, then the State Department and the Justice Department would have much more investigative power of their books. If they mm-hmm. were, if they showed really that, hey, we're part of an extension of foreign government. In 2010, APAC's tax-exempt status was also challenged. These concerns would have been sufficient to drive away scores of APAC's key base of $5,000-plus donors. APAC's signature uh, Washington gathering in May 2011 had a Potemkin village feel to it. Many attendees interviewed by Max Blumenthal seemed woefully uninformed about the issues. Many hundreds of others, including student leaders, attended only after receiving heavy travel subsidies. If the threat of Rosen walking away with $20 million was enough to keep small donors at bay in the recent past, it will likely remain that way for a few more years. On June 20, 2011, this is a few weeks ago, mm-hmm. Rosen filed a brief and a 620-page addendum in the District of Columbia Court of Appeals. Rosen explains why within APAC corporate culture, it was defamatory for his former employers to characterize his attempts to gather and use classified intelligence on Iran as not comporting with standards that APAC expects of its employees. Okay, did you hear that? Uh, yes, that I did. For his to characterize his attempts to gather and use classified intelligence on Iran. Okay. Mm-hmm. Rosen has even filed a smoking gun, uh, uh, basically a file. All these things are linked, by the way, on this on this mm-hmm. thing. July 2004 email updating APAC director Howard Core on U.S. intelligence obtained about Iran and details of Rosen's early use of classified U.S. secrets to derail Jesse Jackson's political career. Rosen's lawsuit... That's not, interesting. Yeah, it is. I'm sure there's a lot more to that story. Um, Rosen's lawsuit will not only elevate insider concerns about APAC donor funds... Uh, May, that may soon be paid out as damage awards, but also raise the larger and more public governance questions about why APAC has never been indicted for espionage 
or theft of government property as a corporation, given what has now been so thoroughly documented in court. As Americans nervously ponder the representatives' travel plans and APAC's nonstop lobbying for American economic and clandestine warfare on Israel's enemies, they must ask other serious questions. Who are the two people now providing the lion's share of APAC's funding? That's 62 out of $64 million, by the mm-hmm. way. Okay, his longtime Washington report on Middle East Affairs editor Janet McMahon revealed during May 2011 uh, move over APAC conference. It's not clear what percentage of APAC's donation come from American contributors and sources. Given APAC's influential leadership role at the head of a network of stealth political action committees it helped establish in the 1980s, will APAC's concentrated pool of core donors channel ever more extreme uh, candidate guidance to the people who really count come election day, uh, single-issue pro-Israel campaign contributors. What do the big APAC donors dispatching 20% of Congress to Israel, 20% of Congress is being sent on their ticket, okay? Think about trip-wiring the U.S. into an unwarranted military conflict with Iran. Americans should ask themselves whether any two people should have so much influence on U.S. Middle East policy. Okay, so yeah. you understand that two, there's two people, individuals, groups that are funding virtually all of this money, which is end up sending 20% of our entire Congress to this foreign nation to yeah. drum up support for that nation. It's crazy. Now, even if you're a Christian and you believe that the Lord is going to do something through some version of Israel, you know, whatever remnant is left at the end, to uh, redeem to his own... Um, that doesn't necessarily say anything goes. And when you have two people providing $62 million in a political action committee, where there's smoke, there's fire. Wouldn't you like to know who those people are? Very much so. Ladies and gentlemen, if you all ever come across any information that gives some hints on that, I'd like to know. And I don't mean just to pick on APAC, but any of the major political action committees, if you got that many people basically got their hand on the rudder, of our pol- politicians, mm-hmm. those two, those two people. So, uh, one last thing I want to mention to you and our listeners: um, there's a good bit, and I won't say this for all of our futurians, but a good bit of them are, that are real fans of Ron Paul mm-hmm. because he espouses a lot of things we talk about on our show. And I saw him today on Fox News, and Megan Kelly interviewed him. That's M E G Y N Kelly, K E L L Y, and. Um, he was on Skype. They interviewed him on Skype. Huh. And he did an incredible job. Uh, she asked him all the really hard things like, well, what are we going to do if Iran gets a nuke? Uh, what are we going to do about, you know, if they go to attack Israel? And he talks about, you know, how they don't even have a nuke right now, but Israel already has 40 of them. But he spends a lot of time talking about something we've talked about on our show. Uh, he elaborated on the 1953 coup when the government mm-hmm. was overthrown. And Megyn Kelly seemed like she just sort of marveled at what he had to say. She seemed very supportive of it. And I don't know if any of this came about because last night on The Daily Show, Jon Stewart was making fun of all the major news media for not covering Ron Paul. <laughs> like was what He sort of humiliated him. <clears throat> yeah, so it was funny. So suddenly they wanted to talk to him. Well, I haven't seen it. but There's even a, there's even a clip that, that sort of precipitated. This is not a Ron Paul show, but yeah. I just thought it was interesting. There was even a clip that sort of precipitated that the some of this Ron Paul stuff where this they got done and and somebody finally said, you know, quite frankly, you know, we you know we're all sort of 
And he was a media pundit. And he said, yeah. quite frankly, we're all just sort of ignoring Ron Paul because we think he's unelectable. Yeah. And but the fact of the matter is, is he's won three purposely ignoring him. Yeah, three three uh, victories and lost one. And the the one he lost was only by one percent because he didn't buy a major country mm-hmm. act to you know help field his tickets. Yeah. And uh, but you know we just ignore him. And then they went on to you know talking uh, about uh, Palenti. Oh, of course we ignore yeah, him. Everybody but we, knows we. But we serve him. the public interest. <coughs> yeah. Uh, we preach you their food for them. Tell mm-hmm. them who to. Who to like, who not to like. Eat this. Don't worry about it. Well, are you ready to feed us with some Futurian news? Yep. Here's uh, from KALW News. Um, By the way, was that just a really boring draft story I just read or anything to... Okay, sorry. (laughs) Didn't mean to wake you. No, it was very interesting. The fact that... Well, as you said, you you hit all the relevant points. The fact that two people now buy this tremendous amount of influence in uh, American politics... Pretty scary. And remain anonymous. Yeah, I don't. I mean, I don't care if they work for Israel or yeah. or uh, Russia or you know North Korea, the Chupacabras. I mean, whatever, yeah. whoever, whoever it is, the mm-hmm. fact that they, fact that they have sixty million dollars or something like that to throw at congressmen is like, uh, uh, and and to cart twenty percent of our entire Congress over to another foreign country mm-hmm. to get their support for the foreign country. Yeah. Scary. Yeah. I don't know what's going on there. Um, this is not quite, you know, your stories are always awesome. Mine is sure. sort of like, you know, lukewarm, lukewarm, stale hot I chocolate. I won't spit them out of my mouth, so. Oh, there you go. Lay it on me. All right. Uh, DHS says terror watch list is exempt from Privacy Act. So. Okay. Uh, they, it's this new terror watch list that has come out that they're now saying, no, you can't look at it. You don't even, you can't even know if if you're on it or not. You can't know how we got mm-hmm. it, you know. And we're not, we're also not responsible for what's on it. Yeah. Um, this is this is different from the no fly list. Yeah, this is because I've been off and on with that. Yeah, this is times. this is this is vaguely similar to like a no fly list, but it's more okay. kind of bigger deal. Bigger. They yeah. call you terrorists. Yeah. If our listeners don't know, the first time I went, I you know I used to work for the government for a long time. Yeah. Flew a whole lot in business. I had a secret security clearance. And then I go, even while all that's true, I went to go to a 911 Truth Conference to Alex Jones. And when I go there, I can't print my boarding pass. And I go to the airport, and they find out that I've been put on the uh, watch list. <laughs> the very time I go go to that. And they don't tell, they won't tell me why yeah. that I'm on it. So, anyway. How did you get on the airplane? You had to show your ID, which at the time was Southwest. It was first come, first serve for boarding passes. Uh-huh. So pretty much if you're on that list, you're doomed to get a C ticket. It means you have no, you're going to be set in yeah. between two sumo wrestlers. Yeah, you have to show up. No yeah. overhead baggage space yeah. or anything like that. Yeah. yeah. Mm. Uh, you know, then for reasons unknown, came off of it, went back on it a second time, and then came back off of it. So, But I now I don't hardly ever fly because I'm pretty much a shut in here. But yep. We'll be seeing Brother Paul in Texas here in a week or two, and uh, tell you, man, you we'll see drove. what happens there. I would have went with you. Yeah, I'm sorry. That's happening. And you're, you're going to have that new job we prayed about by then. Yeah, maybe. Um, DHS's terror watch list is exempt from Privacy Act. Okay. You know, the article comes from uh, a new series that this uh, uh, KALW News in San Francisco is starting to do. Mm-hmm. There's been a lot of a lot of. Um, uh, offenses in the civil rights sort yeah. of area there in the last year or so with the 
the shooting of that guy at the BART thing and, you know, mm-hmm. police batoning a bunch of citizens walking down the street a couple months ago and, hmm. you know, just on and on and on. So they're starting to do this thing called the informant. It's got uh, a lot of new, really interesting things. Uh, anyway, this comes from them. The DHS says terror watch is exempt from the Privacy Act. Last Friday, the federal government's new anti-terror database, the Terror Screening Watchlist Service, went live. The database is loaded with an unknown amount of personal information, including names, photographs, and biometric data. In a new turn that has civil liber- liberty advocates crying foul, the Department of Homeland Security is claiming all information contained in the watchlist is confidential. Hmm. Earlier today, the Electronic Privacy Information Center, the Electronic Frontier Foundation, and several other groups filed a formal complaint with DHS about the blanket exemptions to the Privacy Act. Under DHS rules, guidelines for the terrorist watch list, individuals do not have an opportunity to decline to provide information. Nice for the database. And cannot obtain the relevant information through the Federal Privacy Act. The Privacy Act is one of the milestone reforms passed in the wake of the Watergate spying scandal. It permits individuals to obtain law enforcement files about them by the government with the intent of correcting incorrect information. So now they're saying, you're on this, we don't, you know, you can't. Hmm. It might be incorrect, too bad. No recourse for correction. Yes. In 2007, the Department of Justice uh, Inspector General criticized the previous incarnation of the database as flawed, an audit found 38% of the records contained in the database were inconsistent or incorrect. Um, furthermore, the, got, the investigation found that citizen complaints about the incorrect information were not being handled in a timely manner. Um, conveniently, DHS's new rules for the terror screening watchlist service state that the agency does not control the accuracy of the information retained in the database. Um, Again, no accountability yeah, to them whatsoever. Yeah, so... So now, so this new list, which is expanded from the no-fly list, is uh, you can't challenge it, you can't know what's on it, and uh, um, they're not accountable for the accuracy. And most Americans don't care anything about that unless it happens to them. Yep. And then suddenly they were like, hmm, this doesn't work out so good for me. Yep. So even if you went to your congressman, I guess, still out of luck. Yep. He well, he's not allowed to look at it unless he's on, you know, select committee who sort of oversees it. So either you just sort of run for the Faroe Islands, or you uh, well, let's go, man. I mean, I'm cool. Go to go rendition camp, maybe just volunteer for the rendition camp, get it yep. over with. Mm-hmm. Camp X-ray or something. Yes. Wow. Correct. Did it? Did I miss this? Did it say how many people are on that list? It did not. But haven't you seen stuff? I thought there's been tens of thousands of people on that list. Uh, oh, there's a lot. I don't know the f- I don't know the formal. I don't know number. why the number something like eighty five thousand stuck in my head, but I don't know. It could be. Well, that's yeah, okay. But I don't know. I can't say that for a fact. But it's a police state. Yeah, basically. I mean, we're, we're a police state. now. No longer are we. We're no longer free. Essentially, now we're being put on a list that. Uh, you know, put on a list that you can't know that you're on. You can't challenge the information, and you and nobody's responsible for the accuracy mm-hmm. that to affect your life. So we're 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 now welcome police state. So, but we, we can live in a mirage until they come get us mm-hmm. as individuals. While they get everybody else, we can live in the mirage that we're free. Yes. 
And really, as long as that sword hangs over your head, you're never really free, even though you don't experience it. Maybe for your entire life or whatever, but just the potential. Yeah, well, it did They make reserve it. the right to yank anybody away for whatever reason they please. Yeah, I wish they'd hurry up and yank me away. Yeah, then they'd have to pay to feed you and all that kind of stuff. At least I'd have three squares a day. Yeah. You know what? For your one phone call you get, could you do the future quake like that, remote at it's least? It's going to be like, yeah, Ken. <laughs> well, I have some bad news. Brother Mike, this is going to be my last future quake. Well, now we're not going to let you off wherever you're, you know, taking to parts unknown. If you get get your one phone call a week, I want it to be the future quake interview. Oh. Yeah, I'm cool with that. So, you know. Mm-hmm. Would you like a, a story? Sure. Something to Please. cleanse the palate a little bit? I hope it's something funny. I'm trying to get something a little different. Well, uh, funny is probably not good. Dark maybe would be a good thing. Mm-hmm. Um, this is about Alan Moore. The, Great. I'm sure it'll be funny. The guy who... Uh, Not funny haha, but funny like... Wrote the famous graphic novel Watchmen. Wrote yeah. uh, V for Vendetta, From Hell, The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. Mm. Probably one of the most powerful people influencing the entertainment world today. Yeah. Movies made. He also happens to be the foremost practicing magician and occultist. Mm-hmm. And I, to me, I think he wears the mantle of Aleister Crowley for our generation myself. And I think... Um, well, while I obviously don't agree with anything he says, basically, I think it's good to keep an eye on what he says because it really, he represents the zeitgeist of our culture and mm-hmm. what particularly what younger people are thinking, and he has an incredible amount of influence over them. So mm-hmm. it would be a good idea for Christians to keep an eye on guys like Alan Moore. Mm-hmm. And I have a story I just got from him. This is from The Big Issue in Scotland, okay? And this is just a little bit of what, sort of what's on his mind right now. It's his comic book icon talks mysticism, snake gods, and Hollywood. Okay. Great. Yeah. It says, Alan Moore, anarchist, occultist, mumbling reclusive, practicing magician, and the most important comic book writer of the last three decades, is explaining how he found himself in the peculiar position of guest directing last week's Cheltenham Science Festival. With matching, hmm. graying, flowing hair and beard, fingers generally crowded with scorpion rings, and ideas every bit as wild as his appearance, he cuts a surprising figure amongst the rationalist likes of Professor Robert Winston, Professor Brian Cox, and Roger Highfield, the editor of The New Scientist. It certainly seems a little incongruous uh, to me, he allows, speaking between the stacks of rare books that crowd his terrace house in Northampton and make it almost unlivable. Uh, the writer behind Watchmen, V for Vendetta, and From Hell fell in with the science crowd as a result of his appearances at Robin Ince's School for Gifted Children shows in London. So he's going in and, and impacting our gifted children with his wisdom. As a writer or just as a guy? I think just dispensing his wisdom. Yeah, great. Uh, self-deprecatingly, uh, he describes the events as a bunch of really talented comedians and scientists and musicians and then me. But he is delighted to have been accepted by the rigorously rationalist audience, especially given his decision on his 40th birthday to become an Aleister Crowley-style practicing magician and simultaneously start worshipping the second-century snake god Glycon. It's just your yeah. average guy, you know. Mm-hmm. Remember, the most influential guy in entertainment today. He says, I find myself in the possibly unique position of being a kind of snake-worshipping occultist that rationalists, for some obscure reason, feel comfortable about. Hmm. Chuckles the 57-year-old serial nonconformist. Okay, rationalists like it. 
Moore's take on the sort of hardline Christians who deny evolution would certainly ingratiate him with the Dawkins set. You know, Dawkins, the atheist. Mm-hmm. They'd approve of his intervention at his local museum, which had covered over the letters that revealed Charles Darwin's link to Northampton after creationist protest. The museum changed their mind once more brought the weight of his publicity against the decision. The world of material things that science is so perfect at describing should not be intruded upon by religious fanatics who simply are upset because what science has discovered doesn't happen to agree with their creation myths, he argues, before meandering into his take on Genesis, which has Adam and this is what he thinks, has Adam and Eve as amoebas living in the puddle of Eden before the snake of DNA brought them sex and death and ruined their state of grace. Okay, that said, Moore's intense distrust mm. of religion extends beyond Christianity, Islam, and the rest of the usual suspects. Since the word religion really means bound together in one belief, he says that some of the extreme rationalists are as guilty. I find the idea of being bound together in one belief as an article of faith kind of disturbing wherever that occurs, whether it's in fundamentalist Christianity or it's in some of the extremes of current rationalist science. It's unnatural. So I would tend he would probably lean toward more anarchist um, paganism. Mm-hmm. Is what I'm guessing. He says single, and which is good to know because I think that sort of is a harbinger of where things are going to be going, and really where the major threat is to Christianity will be. It will be in that direction. It's not going to be atheism or Islam or anything else like that. It's going to be what he's talking about. Okay, so singling out uh, a ringleader of the new atheism, Richard Dawkins, Moore says he could be. Uh, he could be more religious than scientific, talking about Dawkins, in his dedication to his own theory of evolution. Mm-hmm. There are lots of alternatives to, say, the selfish gene theory of Darwinism, he says. I've got a great deal of admiration for Richard Dawkins' thinking, but there are other biologists who are putting forward different ideas. If you are proposing an idea because it's your idea, you're proud of it, you want to see it succeed, if you're if you're doing that to the exclusion of other ideas... That's not strictly speaking scientific. It is religious. That is the kind of thinking that I'm opposed to wherever it occurs. Refusing to root for one side or the other in this great standoff between science and spirituality, Moore has suggested a kind of two-state solution where each worldview stays out of the other's business. They are not necessarily naturally in opposition to each other because science actually grew out of magic, as did religion, he explains. That sounds just like uh, Captain America I was watching this weekend. Really? This weekend, yeah. It was, uh, yeah. the uh, there was Schmidt, the uh, sort of uh, Nazi gone, gone awry, and yeah. Captain America. And Captain America, of course, was a, he was a skinny guy who got uh, massive injections of this serum Mm-hmm. That turned him into like Captain America, this new man that was superhuman. Yeah. And then the old guy was Schmidt, who uh, was really into magic. Mm-hmm. And he said magic was a science. Mm-hmm. And uh, we called it magic. But really, it was it was a science. And mm-hmm. uh, the two fought. Okay. Yeah. Was he like the Red Skull? He yeah, Red Skull. Yeah, he was okay. the Red Skull. Yeah. Did they have the Cosmic Cube? They had the Cosmic Cube. Okay, because I just. Remember that from reading comic books. Yeah, the whole the whole nine yards. Okay. Um, well, he says uh, 
He says, science and religion are like magic squabbling unruly children who have both decided that their parents should be net, that their parents should be nutted off to a secure facility somewhere because it's an embarrassment to both of them. Okay? He mm-hmm. says, science and religion both want to divorce themselves from what he thinks is their origin in magic. Mm-hmm. He says, whereas I think that a magical worldview can do an awful lot to resolve those two contradictory things. And he's committing himself to that. Mm-hmm. Uh, more support for magic is a logical extension of his job as a writer of fiction, he believes. Science is fine for everything in the outside world, but it just doesn't do a good enough job on his inner life for him to accept it as a universal theory. Science cannot tell me that some symbol or some entity or story that I chose to give significance to is not significant. Following, so, uh, Yeah, okay, go ahead. No. Chime in. I was just going to say, so he's he's backing off the whole significant, it's all just nonsense. No, he's Listen. saying he, he as a writer can give significance to it. Oh, but nobody else can. Well, the I science see. cannot negate it. Science can say, no, 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 it doesn't. Hmm. Okay. Uh, because he feels like it's out of his jurisdiction to do that. Uh, following British writer Ian Sinclair's idea of psychogeography, geography, this is an interesting concept here. Moore has recently been writing significance and meeting into his East Midlands hometown. The discipline studies how people's environments affect their emotions and behavior and has been key to all of Moore's work since he discovered the theory while writing From Hell, the story of Jack the Ripper. Uh, In that he realized uh, that at that point was inextricably uh, linked to the Victorian London. The whole story of Jack the Ripper. Mm-hmm. He says the Ripper's murders, uh, happening when they did and where they did, were almost like an apocalyptic summary of the entire Victorian age, as he explained before. If the theory can give context to horrific murders, Moore also thinks it can be used effectively or actively to retrofit our dingy urban environments with grand stories. He says, I choose to walk down a street in Northampton that is drab and run down like everywhere else in the country, with plasterboard in the windows and tumbleweed bowling down the shopping precinct, and have a fairly miserable experience, he says. Or I can choose to consider the landscape around me, not in terms of its bricks and its litter and its concrete, but in terms of what that landscape means. I can think, yeah, this is a pretty grubby, pedestrianized area, but that's where Oliver Cromwell slept the night before the Battle of Nazareth. That miserable-looking station just down the road, that was formerly that castle where Thomas a. Beckett was brought to trial and where at least two of the Crusades started out. Or that was King John's castle, where he lost all of the crown jewels in the River Neen, and he said, don't worry, they'll come out in the wash. But they never did. There is this wonderful, rich landscape. We can all change our everyday environment this way with just a bit of effort, he says, and the benefits could be huge. All psychogeography is is a kind of application of poetry to the urban landscape that can potentially make that landscape enriched and meaningful. If you're walking through a meaningful landscape, you might eventually feel that you are meaningful. Moore's appreciation of Northampton's storied history goes back some way to explain why he stayed there, rather than up sticks to the states, where the comics industry is based and where his second wife, Melinda Gebby, hails from. Staying in the town he was born in has also sheltered him from unwelcome side effects of fame. It's also been easier to ignore the film adaptations of his writing, which he noisily hates, even as they bolster his fame and attract more people to the revolutionary complex world of his comics. 
You know, I think he hates them because some of the more occult elements or darker stuff they actually take out of his movies. Hmm. I mean, there's still plenty dark, but they remove a lot of the real content. And our show with Joe Schimmel talked about some of that, too, like Beef from Vendetta. It'd be interesting to get him on. Who? Alan Moore? Alan Moore. If if there was any way possible, he might, like, put a hex on us or something. I don't know. That's, well, it's not like my, he has my a grimoire any more weird. So. I know. He has a demonic grimoire that he's actually publishing right now. Sweet. Um, I mean, not sweet, but... I understand. You know, you know what I mean. I know what you mean. Uh, he Bad. says... Horrible. Um, most of the people around here, talking about where he lives in Northampton, which is a pretty sort of like average humdrum kind of place, are so used to me that they don't take any notice of me, he says. That means that I can have ordinary relationships with ordinary people... And I don't feel like I'm excluded or exotic or that people are talking up to me. I still feel like part of a community. That's probably why I hang out in Northampton rather than losing myself by the poolside in L.A. for a couple couple of decades. Well, then he'd look kind of weird. Hanging that out big long side. beard, yeah. yeah, big beard and the hair and everything, and a pale looking, you know, you're like a kind of a tightly fitting, you know, swimsuit. <laughs> Okay, I'm almost done here. He says, ironically, it was Moore's early social rejection in his hometown that shaped his maverick personality. A working-class boy from the boroughs, the oldest and most deprived end of town, he had boundless faith in his own intelligence until he went to grammar school and found himself up against the prep school kids who already had a smattering of Latin. He says, I suddenly realized that, no, I wasn't the smartest boy in the world after all. It was just that I came from quite a dim neighborhood, he recalls. That blow to my ego probably precipitated my rejection of normal societal values and everything that followed. Hmm. Later, finding himself expelled from the same grammar school for selling LSD, Oops. M- Moore found himself unable to get any work at all, aside from at the local tannery, where light relief came in the form of throwing hacked-off sheep's testicles at each other. Okay? I don't, not Great. that this could have had any effect on him, you know. Mm-hmm. He says... Uh, that did make me realize that actually, uh, he says, I was kind of, he used the F word for messed up. He says, and if I was ever going to have any other life outside of the tanning uh, yards down at Bedford Road, then I was going to have to do it all myself, he said. It forced me to consider my own resources, and that is what pushed me into the life that I now enjoy. Moore's hatred for both the comics establishment and Hollywood makes sense through this anti-establishment prism but he has long since come to see Northampton as a sanctuary rather than an enemy. And for their part, his neighbors have come to welcome the occultist, anarchist, hairy genius in their midst, too. Taking responsibility for myself has allowed me to come to a part where I'm very well accepted in Northampton, he says. The people who do not know who I am, uh, who do know who I am, they recognize what it means that I've chosen to stay here. It's a gesture of confidence in the town where they live. So that's a little bit more about... Alan Moore, and somebody I recommend all our futurians keep an eye on. Yeah, he'd be uh, he'd be interesting to get on. He's got another big something coming out that I think something about time portals opening up and different certain locations of the world. I think it gets back to that psychogeography kind of thing, like almost like ley lines or sacred spots or something like that. Yeah, I was gonna say psychogeography. It sounds like I don't know. So psycho that I don't know. I wonder if you get a lot of jokes there. If you get like uh, you get credits in the psychology and the geography department in that area, it counts in both majors. Yeah. Get like two and a half credits each. Yeah, yeah, yeah it could be. Yeah, you could say like you know I don't really feel like it's the state capital. 
you know, in my psyche. I just don't <laughs> I, relate I, I laid to hands it. on it. It's just, it's not working for right. me. Well, you got a story for us? Sure. Uh, this is from the L.A. Times, Los Angeles Times, okay. newspaper of note. Um, Russia youth seek social lift at Kremlin political camp. Social lift? Social lift. It's like a facelift, but you get to look like Vladimir Putin at the end of the day. Hmm. No, I don't da. know. That's a complete joke. Da. It's like my Russian. Russian. Okay. It always sounds like it always sounds like Klingon when they talk. No, it didn't sound like that. <laughs> it's a very elegant language. Oh, uh, I don't know about elegant. Yeah, you just influenced. I mean, you've insulted all of our Russian Russians. Listeners. They're all being like, "Oh my gosh, I'm gonna send a missile over him." ICBM. Because that's all they do. They all have them in their backyard. Every one of them. And they are not in a May Day parade, you know, talking about killing us. Everyone. Yeah, they they go to the May Day parade and then the cars just drive and they park them on the street down, down the road. Um. Anyway, the forum teaches them how to keep secrets from journalists, raise funds, and organize. But most of those in Lake Seliger seem less interested in the Kremlin than in climbing the social ladder. So. Okay, we teach them to do bad stuff, but okay, we're gonna soft pedal it just a tad here. That was their, that was the way they sold that. At any rate, uh, this is uh, reporting from he's reporting from Nolovo Nolovo Patsyan, I think. Oh yeah. Yep. Uh, they wake up to the Russian national anthem and gather near the main stage, lined with huge portraits of Vladimir Putin uh, and his boss. Uh, and they say in parentheses here on paper at least, mm-hmm. Dmitry Medvedev. Right. Where they do morning exercises to music interrupted periodically by recorded quotations from both leaders. As the day goes on, they are taught how to keep secrets from journalists, how to be active on the Internet, how to set up youth organizations, and how to raise funds. They are trained in martial arts by an, an, an expert from the Vladimir, Vladimir Putin Fight Club, and, extra- and instructed to read books suggested by Putin. One thing they don't need to, do, to be taught is to adore Putin. They already do. Hmm. In the sprawling that Kremlin... sound like North Korea. Yeah, kind of. In the sprawling Kremlin-sponsored youth camp 220 miles northwest of Moscow, 99 acres of white sand, tall pines, and Lake Seliger, a jewel of Russian nature, thousands of young men and women are learning how to be supporters of the ruling United Russia Party, uh, future politicians and senior government officials. The state spends more than seven million to accommodate about twenty thousand eighteen to twenty-five year olds at the camp, known as Silliger Forum 2011. They come in groups of seven thousand for nine days in July. Most of them from the Kremlin-nurtured youth organizations such as Nashi, uh, Metsyanin, and Stal. Political youth camps are a fixture of summer the world over. Some activists and journalists, however, have expressed concern about the role of the Kremlin-backed youth groups in harassing liberal politicians and journalists and countering opposition rallies in a country that has seen civil liberties threatened and the rule of law founder. Um, Moving on, the Kremlin grew concerned of what was going on in the minds of the young people amid the succession of orange revolutions in the former Soviet republics. Uh, said a senior Russian researcher named uh, uh, Dmitry Orishink, uh, Orish, Orishkin. I'm, mm-hmm. That's a good thing I'm not going to Russia. Yeah. Uh, 
But he says, but whatever the campers may say now, many of them don't really care about the Kremlin or its leaders, but regard their being here as a chance for a career boost. I love how they're like, yeah, we're doing bad stuff, but really this mm. is just you know, good for their career. Mm. Um, Alexander Vasenkov, a 19-year-old student from the city of Yaroslavl, acknowledged that he hoped to get a social lift here and improve his prospects. His prospects. I hope that being maximally active here will help me to climb up the social ladder and really reach my goals faster. Um, not far from a row of posters named Losers of the Year featuring photographs of imprisoned tycoon Mikhail Kordrovsky and other opposition leaders, an instructor told one group seated in the circle how Putin disposed of the system of oligarchs that rose after the fall of the Soviet Union. Mm. <laughs> Uh, he goes on to state that Boris uh, Boris Berzovsky and uh, Vladimir Gozinsky. <laughs> What's so funny about his name? Uh, just Gozinsky? I don't know. Yeah. Nothing. Uh, are abroad, uh, and Kordovsky is in prison. The instructor said to an approving to approving grunts and giggles. So the oligarchs no longer govern the state and no longer influence the decisions taken by the people authorized to do so. Journalists may be loyal, but they also may be provocative, another instructor told his group. Be careful with seemingly simple questions, because if you chatter a lot, you help your enemy. Nodding their heads, the students mm. took note. By not, telling the truth, that yeah, would actually help. Yeah, not far enemy. from some graffiti depicting a kimono-clad Putin holding the globe in his arms, another group was asked to discuss various concepts. Okay, how about the notion of America, the instructor asked. America is to blame for everything, one student uh, replied quickly. These young people are taught to open up accounts on all social networks, make as many friends as possible, and thus spread information with maximum efficiency, explained Vasily Yakamenko, founder of the Nasha Youth Group and head of the Federal Agency for Youth Affairs that runs the camp. Our camp will eventually turn into the biggest youth communication center in the world where young people from other countries can come and talk about things they can't discuss is at home. Um, so there you, there's kind of it. You know? That's very scary. That's, it's, so these camps are almost almost like a Hitler youth kind of thing, but yeah, they're just venerating yeah, yeah, Putin. Actually, yeah. I mean, I mean Putin, we, we don't see as much of him. He's sort of behind the scenes more. Mm-hmm. You know, he didn't really flash like our presidents do. Mm-hmm. But he is building a cult worship in young people behind him is what I gather this is. Yep. Uh, Vasily Meshurnov, a 20-year-old Moscow student, said uh, during lunch uh, over tea, uh, Medvedev is weak in his foreign policy in Russia, has lost many positions of influence abroad. So Putin, with his tough approach, could come back and lead, should come back and lead our lead the country. Mm-hmm. I live well with Putin in power, and he should continue to run the country, says Anna Versova, 19, a student from St. Petersburg. Uh, so uh, Medvedev is there for right now, and everybody recognizes him as sort of a puppet of Putin. Yes, even but when, people. when he starts reflect, flexing his muscles of independence, he's mm-hmm. as good as gone. That's what I'm gathering. Mm, yep, yep. So, uh, so uh, the final the final sentence here on the article. Yes, these kids are brainwashed, journalist Kashin said, but they just enjoy coming here, mixing with other boys and girls, and having a cool time at the state's expense. Oh, that's a good tactic. Totally brainwashed, but hey, man, at least they got a good time out of it. 
That's all that matters in life. Who cares if you're, you know, yep. being led around by the nose and you don't know as long as you're feeling good. Give, mm-hmm. give the soma out, you know, yep. like Brave New World. Yep. So there you have it. Boy, that that's not going to end good. That old no. thing with Putin, you know. You know, it's in- you, you know what's crazy? Why would anybody ever think that having the former head of your intelligence group would make you a good leader of your country? Uh, I'm glad we've never been, done something as stupid as that. You're right. Oh, wait a minute. Da, wah, wah, wah. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> it's more like this. Wah, 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 wah. <laughs> you did it much better than I can. Uh, well, that's, that is very interesting. Anything else to add on that? That's pretty much it, man. So we need to be on a Putin watch as well as Alan Moore watch. Yep. All right. Yep. Well, here, I've got mm-hmm. one that's more old school future quake. Mm-hmm. Okay, this is just like things changing in the future kind of thing. The more things change, the more they stay the same. Da 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 wa wa wa. I don't remember that one, but I just made uh, it up. Boom! Okay. Just came okay. out of my head. Just kabam. Okay. Well, this story here is <laughs> from the the Mail, the uh, newspaper in the UK. Uh huh. Says Atlas Shrugged. Silicon Valley billionaire reveals plan to launch floating startup country off coast of San Francisco. Sweet. I don't know if you're familiar with that or not. Floating startup country. Yeah. They start up everything else yeah. there in Silicon Valley. Why not a country? Okay. In your uh. old stomping grounds. Okay. It says uh, PayPal founder Peter, Peter Thiel was so inspired by Atlas Shrugged and Rand's novel about free market capitalism that he's trying to make its title a reality. The Silicon Valley, Valley billionaire has funneled one and a quarter million to the Seasteading Institute. It's like homesteading, but it's seasteading. Mm-hmm. An organization that aspires to launch a floating colony into international waters, freeing them and like-minded thinkers to live by libertarian ideals. Mr. Thiel recently told Details Magazine that the United States Constitution had things you could do at the beginning that you couldn't do later. So the question is, can you go back to the beginning of things? How do you start over? Okay. Um, mm-hmm. The floating sovereign nations that Thiel imagines would be built on oil rig-like platforms anchored in areas free of regulation, laws, and moral conventions. The Seasteading Institute says it will give people the freedom to choose the government they want instead of being stuck with the government they get. Well, you know what? They get the government that they get because they're too lazy to do their own research. I mean, the politicians do really give people today what they're asking for. The, the problem is the people. It's not the politicians. You know, if they if they do big money people and they, they only listen to the ones that have lots of money, then they get what they deserve. And I don't see that there's anything different with people. You put them on a C platform that they're not going to even respond to leaders who have the most panache you know, the most charming. They're going to still yep. do it there as they are here. Sure. You know. Sure. A, 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 new, a new clean slate and like a new venue is not going to change the stupidity of people. It says the venture capitalist who famously helped Facebook expand beyond the Harvard campus, Mr. Thiel called Seasteading and open a frontier for experimenting with new ideas for government. After making his first investment in the project in 2008, Mr. Thiel said, decades from now, those looking back at the start of the century will understand that seasteading was an obvious step towards encouraging the development of more efficient, practical public sector models around the world. 
we're at a fascinating juncture. The, The nature of government is about to change at a very fundamental level. Mr. Thielen is maybe. Pop- well, I'll bet that gets sa- I get that that gets sabotaged big time. Oh yeah. Uh, Mr. Thielen and his colleagues say their ocean state would have no welfare, looser building codes, no minimum wage, and few restrictions on weapons. Okay. So what Mr. Thiel is saying? Somebody please shoot me. That's that's really what he's saying. Some some government, some large corporation needs to shoot me, because we can't have that kind of freedom. Yeah. Maybe. Yep. We'll and I mean, I feel sorry today. about that. That's. Yeah. But. Yeah. You know, that's just that level of freedom is just not going to fly. Yeah. They're going to try to put a stop to it. Yeah. Well, um, Mr. Thiel said the nature of government. Uh, let's see here. Uh, he says aiming to have tens of thousands of residents by 2050. Tens of tens of millions of residents by 2050. Okay, tens of millions. This and that's what. 39 years from now, mm-hmm. the Seastead Institute says architectural plans for a prototype involve a movable diesel-powered structure with room for 270 residents. I guess if they're all diesel-powered, it's a good thing that they're movable, maybe floating, because when the sea levels rise from all that diesel power, they'll probably need that, you know. This uh, is water world, basically. I would say more about. what they really need to do is not diesel power, but like row you know, rowboat kind of yeah, a thing. Like yeah. big rows come That's out. That's a good idea. Oars. Yep. Yeah. The long-term plan would be to have dozens and eventually hundreds of platforms linked together. Patrick Friedman, a former Google uh, engineer who was working on the project, told details that they hope to launch a flotilla of offices off the San Francisco coast next year. Big ideas start as weird ideas, Friedman said. He predicted that f- full-time settlement will follow in about seven years. But while Ayn Rand acolytes say the idea is brilliant, it's not without its critics. Margaret Crawford, an expert on urban planning and a professor of architecture at Berkeley, told details, it's a silly idea without any urban planning implications whatsoever. Thiel, meanwhile, wants a, uh, a crowd uh, at the Seasteading Institute in 2009, then, or he once told them that there are quite a lot of people who think it's not possible. That's a good thing. We don't need to really worry about those people very much because since they don't think it's possible, they don't take us very seriously, and they will not actually try to stop us until it's too late. Interesting. Now, there's a lot of things I can think about that, you know. Um, You know that I'm basically libertarian in my views, and what I believe is is that no man should be able to tell another man, you know, um, how he he or she should live their life. As long as they don't impose on other people. Mm-hmm. Okay, as long as they don't impose. And they can live by the dictates of their own conscience between them and God. There will come a day when Jesus will return and he'll have his rod of iron and he will say how it's going to be because he created all of us. Mm-hmm. But until then, what does any one man have a right over another man? In other words, he's in a more sacred space to be able to dictate to the others what's going on. Um, but for anything like that kind of society to survive... You have to have people that have at least some measure of ethics to be able to do this basically golden rule, to live by Mm -hmm. the golden rule. And if you don't have that, I don't think the things would last very long. Well, you know... uh, Unless you have an inherently ethical people. Well, you know, one thing that I mentioned, and and I've been taking this to... I've been thinking about this for a while. Uh, but one thing I made mention of uh, when we did the show on the politics and conspiracy with 
brother Andrew Hoffman uh, mm-hmm. there at the at the Branson conference. Yeah, well, we had a lot of feedback on that. A lot of people really liked that show. By I, the way. I thought it was good. I, you know, I don't listen to much of our shows because yeah. um, I'm here recording them. You know. Yeah. Um, you have a hard time staying awake during the live recording, much less listening later on. Yeah. No, wrong, wrong co-host. Yeah. Um, now, one thing that one thing that occurred to me uh, while we were talking, and I made mention of it, is the fact that really, without a heart heart change, then no, um, no, it doesn't matter what system you're in, whether it's a kingship or mm-hmm. whatever. But the the key is the heart thing, right? Mm-hmm. So if you can get people in sort of a libertarian type thing with a with the right heart, then it's going to be awesome, you know. You just think about it. If you're out on the platform like this, and you know, ideally it would be great everybody respected each other and did those kind of things. Mm-hmm. But you put them out on a platform like this, and suddenly they're out in international waters, so there's no police they're accountable to, no other kind of thing. You got unlimited weapons. What do you think the people with the most weapons? on this truly independent state are going to start thinking about the people who get less weapons. Hmm. You know? And there's no accountability. They don't have anybody that's going to come down on them if they decide just to use their extra force on everybody else there. Mm-hmm. No, um, it could be it could be like the ultimate the ultimate evil in that sort of case. Well, I don't, you know, I'm not trying to say that we should have a theocracy because usually the people who take the leadership of that know less about God than everybody else in yeah. reality. But um, these are people where, I mean, it sounds like hedonism when they're talking about beyond moral conventions, mm-hmm. where hedonism would be the main thing that, that would lead what they're doing. Mm-hmm. And it would be too tempting eventually for them to use the weapons and everything else, I think. Yeah, it could be. It's hard to say. The, Unless I mean, you have a strong Bill of Rights, you know, and other kind of stuff like the Constitution is. And you have some kind of institutions that you can trust to hold, to hold them accountable. Well, the one thing they were saying there is they plan to have these big... Uh, floating whatever they were, and chain them all together at some point. Mm-hmm. I mean, the worst that you know, one thing that people could do is just, you know, pull the bolts out of the chain and let mm-hmm. that, you know, let that guy float off and do his own thing. Yeah. You know. Yeah. But I, I don't know. Yeah. Very interesting. I just thought about it. it'd be cool if we could have our own Futurian platform. Yep. It'd be just Futurians that could live there, and we could. You know, talk about this kind of stuff until we all get tired of each other. Yeah. And but what I was thinking, I wouldn't is, go. You wouldn't. You know why? Why? Because we're supposed to be salt and light, and it's hard to be salt and light when you have a bunch of yes men around. Yeah. There you go, getting all religious on me. <laughs> well, well, I was, I had another idea. I was thinking about, you know, instead of like using all of our resources, because you know, Futurians, we don't have a lot of resources. Yeah, pretty we much all we could afford. All we could afford is like a big canoe. Yeah. Yeah, yeah maybe a raft or something. But what I was thinking is what money we did have, you put it in, in weapons instead of other stuff because you can always get the other supplies if you <laughs> have more weapons. Yeah. And we could just get like sort of a navy and like pirates. We just go attack these floating cities. You know, uh, attack fr- them one at a time. A, a very intelligent comment I read on a, on a post uh, on, a, on, a, on a forum one time, and that was people were, different people were going on and on about how, you know, gold and silver – you know, gold and silver were the best thing in a crisis mm-hmm. situation. And this guy got on there and he said, look, I'm only going to say this once. I've been in those crisis situations and I've, mm-hmm. you know, I've had to use guns to get what I needed. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, gold and silver doesn't set the price of anything. Yeah. Food sets the price right. of everything else. Right. You know. Food and water. That's what my gut tells me, too. Yep. 
You know, gold and silver do good if you have big financial crisis, but you don't have total societal breakdown. Mm-hmm. Just if it's like upheaval economically, mm-hmm. gold and silver work you good. But when things get go past that into every person for themselves, mm-hmm. you can't eat it. Yeah, gold and silver breaks down. And when mm-hmm. when things go to Mad Max, fuel fuel yeah. may be of some use, you know, mm-hmm. medicine. Mm-hmm. Of course, water is important, but we're talking basics there, you know. Yeah, indeed. So, I, I still think the investment in postage stamps are the best thing to do, though. Uh, yeah, because I can they, see where you'd need a postage stamp in a crisis. Well, situation. they're always pegged. At, at, at forever stamp is always a peg to the value of one ounce of mail to mail. Hmm. So, you know, it's easy to store. You're right. I can. I, I see the. I and see the tax free. It's, it's, it's very intelligent. I'm, well, I'm. I'm seeing it now. Well, I should have released like a, a DVD series and made some money off of that. Yeah, you rather than giving like, it out free to our futurians. You could have been like the the Lindsay Williams of the postage. Yeah, supposed to have to sort of community. stretch it out. Yeah, not give it away for a long the time. The Irwin Schiff of the postage community. <laughs> you got a story for us? <laughs> yeah, this is from finance.yahoo.com. And, uh, you know, one of the stories, you know, uh, it's funny, like, you always try to find new stories and try not to kind of cover the thing, same topics that you always cover. I try. I'm not always successful. Yeah. I don't know I get in a rut, but I that's have, my goal. I have four or five things that I try and, like, keep people updated on, and one of them is, is government largesse mm-hmm. and, you know, misallocation of funds. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, we've got we've got kind of the the uh, the mother of all of all misallocations here. Okay. Um, this is from the Daily Ticker, which is a finance.yahoo.com sort of subcategory. Mm-hmm. It's a very short article. Um, but the name of the article is Budget Buster, Pentagon Unable to Account for, quote, trillions, unquote, Glane says. And there's, there's, a, there's a video here with it, which I obviously won't play for you, but it's there if people decide to look that one up. The United States military budget accounts for over 40% of the world's annual military expenditures. How much? 40% of the world's annual military expenditures. One country out of what, like almost 200 countries yeah, or something? Yeah, 212, I think. I mean, it depends on how you want okay. to cut that all out. But um, So, the Christian country is spending 40% of the world's wealth on... Weapons. Yes. Okay. And at around seven hundred billion per year, that's more than twenty percent of the federal budget. The federal government wants to curb that spending as part of deficit reduction. Last week's deficit call deals uh, deficit deal calls for up to three hundred and fifty billion in cuts over the next decade on the departments of defense, state, homeland security, and veterans affairs, among others. And if the debt super committee fails to reach a deal on a 1.2 trillion deal in budget cuts, it will automatically trigger trigger an additional 500 billion in cuts over the next decade. Cutting in a bureaucracy as large and convoluted as the Pentagon is no easy task, says Steve. But Stephen Glane, author of State versus Defense, The Battle to Define America's Empire, says that there are three issues at ha- at the heart of their spending problem. Um, first off, growing obligations, much like other public sector groups, the Pentagon has grown has growing liabilities coming from pension and medical insurance plans. It's a very much a microcosm of the problems facing the country. The Pentagon's liability for civil employees is currently 60 billion, and the rate of growth is enormous. 
accounting problems, uh, and, and this is a very short article. There's only just a little bit left. Mm-hmm. Um, you think Enron's accounting was troubled. The Pentagon has very little accountability when it comes to its books. Since first submitted financial, since first submitting financial accounts in 1991, let me say that again. Since first submitting financial accounts in 1991, that means before mm. that they didn't have to submit financial accounts, mm. which is money in a big slush fund. And you ran the credit card, you know. The Pentagon has been, able, been unable to account for trillions of dollars, well over almost $10 trillion by my own account, says Glenn. Conspiracy theorists suggest this is a CIA money being laundered through the Pentagon, a claim Gain actually has some sympathy for. And finally, ending the wars. Ending operations in Iraq and Afghanistan will instantly save the Defense Department $180 billion per year. According to Joseph Stiglitz, the wars have cost the government $3 trillion and counting. It would save $180 billion a year? That's Instantly, what yeah. Okay. And uh, we've already spent $3 trillion there and counting. $3 trillion. Yes. So. Um, well, has it made us any safer? No. I don't believe so. No. So and that's actually the end of the article, but it very short. But mm-hmm. there were some some shocking statistics there. Forty percent of the world's annual military expenditures, twenty percent of the federal budget. Um, the uh, what was it? They didn't submit financial accounts until mm-hmm. you know going on about twenty years ago. Mm. Uh, the the guy who came up with this stuff says that. Yeah, uh, it could be that the CIA is laundering money through the Pentagon. That yeah, um, and that if we ended the wars, we'd immediately um, save the Defense Department 180 billion. Wow, it's like, I mean, it's hard to even think in those in those terms that mm-hmm. big. Mm-hmm. Well, and you wonder long-term medical cost savings of more people that you take care of for life or severe. You know, injuries and stuff like that, and lost limbs and other injuries and stuff like that. The medical from it. Yeah. Would you like some more statistics? Great. Particularly war stuff. Okay. Um, this is a very interesting article that I don't know quite how to take it, which is some what some of my favorites are, or ones you really don't know how to read it. Um, it's called Think Again, War. And it's at the foreign pol- foreignpolicy.com. Mm-hmm. Now, I think if this is Foreign Policy Magazine, this is uh, probably tied to the Council on Foreign Relations, isn't it? I think they're the ones that mm, released that could magazine. Could be. I don't know. So you have to consider the source, okay? Is it? When I read yeah. this, this may be CFR thinking behind this, okay, to justify things. But what this article does is it debunks some common held beliefs with statistics, at least they propose mm-hmm. and be curious in your thoughts and other futurians on whether you buy it or not okay 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 the first one that they uh, propose is the world is a more violent place than it used to be and their response is no way the early 21st century seems awash in wars the conflicts in afghanistan iraq street battles in somalia islamist insurgencies in pakistan and congo genocidal campaigns in sudan all in all, regular fighting is taking place in 18 wars around the globe today. Mm-hmm. Public opinion reflects this sense of an ever more dangerous world. 
One survey a few years ago found that 60% of Americans considered a third world war likely. Expectations of the new century were bleak even before the attacks of September 11th and their bloody aftermath. Political scientist James Blight and former Secretary Robert McNamara suggested earlier this year that we could look forward to an average of 3 million war deaths per year worldwide in the 21st century. Okay, that's what they thought back then. Mm-hmm. Which is so far they haven't been even close. In fact, the last decade has seen fewer war deaths than any decade in the last hundred years. Based on data compiled by researchers Bethany Lucina and Niels Glidich at the Peace Research Institute Oslo. Worldwide, deaths caused directly by war-related violence in the new century have averaged 55,000 a year. Okay? Mm -hmm. Just over half of what they were in the 90s, which was 100,000 a year. Mm -hmm. Now, I don't know if that's... If there really are a million Iraqi war dead, that would throw that number way out of there, mm-hmm. you know, just in Iraq. So it depends on that. That's why I'm saying you have to take this with a grain of salt, but it's very interesting. Mm-hmm. And it says it's a third of what they were during the Cold War, which was 180,000 a year killed from 1950 to 89, mm-hmm. and a hundredth of what they were in World War II. If you factor in the growing global population, which is nearly quadrupled in the last century, the decrease is even sharper. Far from being an age of killer anarchy, the 20 years since the Cold War ended have been an era of rapid progress toward peace. Armed conflict has declined in large part because armed conflict has fundamentally changed. Wars between big national armies all but disappeared along with the Cold War, taking with them the most horrific kinds of mass destruction. Today's uh, asymmetrical uh, guerrilla wars may be intractable and nasty, but they will never produce anything like the siege of Leningrad. The last conflict between the two great powers, the Korean War, was effectively ended nearly 60 years ago. The last sustained territorial war between two regular armies, uh, Ethiopia and Eritrea, ended a decade ago. Even civil wars, though persistent evil, are less common than in the past. There are about a quarter fewer in 2007 than 1990. If the world feels like a more violent place than it actually is, it's because there's more information about wars, not more wars themselves. Once remote battles and war crimes now regularly make it under our TV and computer screens and in more or less real time. Cell phone cameras have turned citizens into reporters in many war zones. Societal norms about what to make of this information have also changed. As Harvard University psychologist Steven Pinker has noted, the decline of violent behavior has been paralleled by a decline in attitudes that tolerate or glorify violence. So that we see today's atrocities, though mild by historical standards, as signs of how low our behavior can sink, not of how high our standards have risen. Hmm. So do you buy that? No. Okay. You say their statistics are an error or... Or their I have to think about it a little more, but um, I, I mean, I don't know. It just seems to me that uh, I would say that I would say that their boundary conditions might be a little off. What they value might be incorrect. Okay, can you give a specific? Well, they're they're if if I understand what you're saying correctly, they're saying that things are getting better, but we're looking back at we're looking back on our future and saying things are getting. Things are getting worse, but it's only because things have, have risen so high, mm-hmm. right? And that we, we're more attuned to be aware of it, measuring that kind of thing. Well, as I often do, may I may I respond to that by analogy? Okay. Um, 
there was an Amish guy, an Amish family. They didn't have TV or running mm-hmm. or electricity. They may, maybe they had running water, but mm-hmm. you know they grew their own food and uh, they had a horse and mm-hmm. were all very healthy and happy and and lived in community together. And then uh and then a uh, um a group came in and said, well you know we want to put in uh you know we want to put in uh, some more homes and stuff and some tract housing. We're going to put in uh, oh, gosh I don't know better plumbing and and mm-hmm. uh, you know other things like that and uh, heating and air conditioning and other things and. Uh, so, uh, uh, slowly, slowly, uh, you know, technology began to encroach, and as it encroached, the people, the, the Amish people who had this close-knit community and didn't have much by worldly standards, uh, were very healthy and happy, uh, began to go, mm-hmm. well, man, maybe I need to get a fridge, maybe I need to get a television, maybe I need mm. to get uh, these other these other comforts, and pretty soon he has to give up his, his rural way of life and uh, start working, mm-hmm. and he finds himself getting more and more stressed out, which makes him more and more sick. Mm. Uh, so now he's gone to the doctor to buy drugs, and he's gone to the store to buy food, which fun- tastes funny, but in reality it's not as healthy. Mm-hmm. And so then the the guy, 20 years later, you know, finally goes on a big vacation with his family, and they go fishing, and they just they have a great time. And he goes, gosh, mm. this is so much funny, so much fun. And his son, who's now grown, says, who's 30 years old, he says, Dad, you could have caught fish way bigger than this at the house 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. And uh, shortly after that, it dawns on him, you know, that uh, stuff is not mm-hmm. the answer. It's uh, community. What's going on in your heart? Mm-hmm. And, you know, in our case, serving God's kingdom mm-hmm. uh, is the thing. So I think they fail to take, they say more is better, and I would dispute that. Okay. More what, though, are they saying? They're saying they're saying we're looking back on a uh, a, uh, uh, a world that is in fact getting better, and we see aberrations in our mm-hmm. moral fiber as being uh, that's causing us to look back. And I would say now uh, I would say a lot of that is swept under the rug, and in fact our uh, personal peace and affluence uh, mindset mm-hmm. is is far greater is a far greater damage. Well, you know, they're just talking about war, basically. Oh, okay. Well, I mean, war is the thing is that they're they're really talking about here. To me, to me, a lot of it hangs on their statistics. Hmm. You know, they always say there's lies and worse lies than their statistics. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when we talk about a million dead in Iraq, is that really true or not? If it's really true, then their initial statistics are off here. Uh, if it's not true, then it may be closer to what they're saying. It may be people are exaggerating. I don't yeah. know. But I've, I've heard some, I've heard to, some to say that there's five hundred. there were 500,000 dead of just women and children. Yeah. So, you know. I don't know. Non, I don't know. They they don't really. S- non-combatants. But, you know, they, they say this information comes from the Peace Research Institute in Oslo. Don't know anything about them. Would you like to have another common Hit me. understanding? That's Hit me. It's time to do it hard. America's fighting more wars than ever. You remember we talked about how we had all the special forces in 120 countries last... 75 wars. Yeah, but we're going to like 120 countries right now. Uh Well, I guess wars and special forces they see as different things. Okay, the answer here is yes and no, according to them. Clearly, the U.S. has been on a war footing ever since 9-1-1. And I would submit ever since World War II, really. Mm -hmm. Uh, With a still ongoing war in Afghanistan that has surpassed the Vietnam War is the longest conflict in American history, and a preemptive war in Iraq that proved to be longer, bloodier, and more expensive than anyone expected. 
Add the current NATO intervention in Libya and drone campaigns in Pakistan, Somalia, and Yemen, and it's no wonder that U.S. military spending has grown by more than 80% in real terms over the last decade. At $675 billion this year, uh, it's now 30% higher than it was at the end of the Cold War. Okay, when we had like a real big major enemy, supposedly. But though the conflicts of the post-911 era may be longer than those of past generations, they are also far smaller and less lethal. America's decade of war since 2001 has killed about 6,000 U.S. service members, compared with 58,000 in Vietnam and 300,000 in World War II. Uh, I think some of that is because now we can keep guys alive more, we get more people injured mm-hmm. than killed. We get more people maimed because we have good medicine mm-hmm. instead of just dead. Okay, uh, Every life lost to war is one too many, but these deaths have to be seen in context. Last year, more Americans died in falling out of bed than in all U.S. wars combined. Did you know that? Yeah, I did actually. Okay. I, it's funny, I just saw a, a uh, National Geographic statistic where they, they sort of looked at the same kind of metrics. Yeah. And I was like, yeah, well, I, I grant I would agree that's the wrong metric. The yeah. whole idea is morality. Right, you know? right. And the fighting in Iraq and Afghanistan has taken place against a black dro- backdrop of base closures and personnel drawdowns elsewhere in the world. The temporary rise in U.S. troop numbers in Southeast Asia and the Middle East from 18,000 to 212,000 since 2000 contrasts with the permanent withdrawal of almost 40,000 troops from Europe 34,000 from Japan and South Korea, and 10,000 from Latin America in that period. When U.S. forces came home from the current wars, and they won large numbers in the near future, starting with 40,000 troops from Iraq and 33,000 from Afghanistan in 2012, there will be fewer U.S. troops deployed around the world than at any time since the 1930s. Hmm. President Barack Obama was telling the truth in June when he said the tide of war is receding. Okay. Mm-hmm. Again, do you buy it? Mm. Are the statistics telling us the real story? Well, I would say in that case, it's hard to reconcile that. Well, I, again, it's all on how you parse the information. Yeah. You know, is secret, you know, special forces running around doing their nonsense of war, or is it not? Right. Exactly. You know, that's exactly the right. The fact that the fact that we're hosing down, you know, people randomly in Nigeria mm-hmm. with with fifty cal, you know. Guns on on helicopters and stuff, and we don't need as many people when we've got drones and all that kind yeah, of stuff. To yeah, stuff. yeah. One of the one of the things we covered here is it's you know, change. We yeah. still say it's change. Yeah, I mean, how do you even count it now? You know, do yeah. you count it by war dead? In that case, yeah. we're basically we are in a worldwide yeah. war, worldwide war. Basically, the best I can see is you need a lot of troops when you're going to occupy a place. To, to sort of like overthrow it or do battles and you don't need that many people. Mm-hmm. But when you need to occupy it where you've got to deal with local villagers and the local mm-hmm. mayor and stuff like that as, you know, military viceroys, it's when you need a lot of boots on the ground. Military um, viceroys. Yeah. But uh, what what I was thinking interesting when I read this, if this happens, okay, if it happens that we get 40,000 troops from Iraq shortly and 33 in Afghanistan, I assume those people are probably, a lot of them are going to be exiting the military, you figure? Where are they going to work, if that's the case? Starbucks? Where's our jobs going to be to cover those people? Shooting range? McDonald's? Uh, 
We've probably got about another 10 minutes worth of stories. Do you have another story you want to read? I can stop this or I can continue with some of these, whatever you prefer. Is there any more to that article? It is interesting. Yeah, there's some more There's some more of these that I have, but I don't want to, if you'd rather do a story. No, keep going. Keep going, okay. Roll. I'd say we got about maybe nine minutes of, okay. of Give, story. Okay, well. Of story mm, time. Yeah. You want to read another one? Well, I don't want to read another one, but I just know that you got a lot of cool emails. Yeah. Oh, but is this in, is this in addition to that? I would tell you about okay, no, no, keep to, going. Roll. Sure, okay. Yeah, man. All right, here's another one. Let's see what you think about this. War has gotten more brutal for civilians. There was, that I would believe, I, I would agree with. Well, their response is hardly. In February 2010, a that just shows what you know, Tom Bionic. Uh, in February 2010, a NATO airstrike hit a house in Afghanistan's Marja district, killing at least nine civilians inside. The tragedy drew condemnation and made the news, leading the top NATO commander in the country to apologize to Afghan President Karzai. The response underscored just how much has changed in war. During World War II, Allied bombers killed hundreds of thousands of civilians in Dresden and Tokyo, not by accident, but as a matter of tactics. Um, and, you know, Tokyo were more killed there than, than Hiroshima. Mm-hmm. I mean, over I think over 100,000. Oh, it was bad, fire yeah. bombing. Yeah. Um, Germany, of course, murdered civilians by the millions. And when today civilians do end up in harm's way, more people are looking out for them. The humanitarian dollar spent per displaced person rose in real terms from $150 in the early 1990s to $300 in 2006. Hmm. I don't know if that's on real terms. I guess that's tax adjust. I mean, inflation adjusted. Total international humanitarian assistance has grown from $2 billion in 1990 to $6 billion in 2000, and according to donor country claims, $18 billion in 2008. For those caught in the crossfire, war has actually gotten more humane. Yet many people insist that the situation is otherwise. For example, authoritative works on peacekeeping and civil wars, uh, Roland Paris's award-winning at War's End, and they mentioned a couple of the books here, as well as Gold standard reports on conflict from the World Bank and the Carnegie Commission on preventing deadly conflict tell us that 90% of today's war deaths are civilian, while just 10% are military. The reverse of a century ago, and a grim indicator of the transformation of armed conflict in the late 20th century, as political scientist Holstey put it. Grim indeed, but fortunately untrue. Okay, so they're disputing those statistics. Great. The myth originates with the 1994 UN Development Report, which misread work that Swedish researcher Christer Alstrom had done in 91 and accidentally conflated war fatalities in the early 20th century with the much larger number of dead, wounded, and displaced people in the late 20th century. A more careful analysis done in 1989 by peace researcher William Eckhard shows that the ratio of military to civilian war deaths remains about 50-50, as it is for, has for centuries, although it varies considerably from one war to the next. If you are unlucky enough to be in a, a civilian in a war zone, of course, these statistics are a little comfort. But on a worldwide scale, we are making progress in helping civilians afflicted by war. I don't know, man. I, I, yeah, I'm not saying any of this is true. And you got to understand, this is coming from Council on Foreign Relations. So, what's their agenda? Uh, what they're saying this, but you know, we throw around statistics all the time. So does everybody else. Yeah. 
uh, who's oh, that spinning in like, what direction? You know. Oh, that sounds. There may like be insanity. there may be a lot of truth in what they're saying here, but then you also there may be a lot of agenda. But well, just just wondered what you thought about it. Well, you know, you know that there's that old there's that old saying. It's not a proverb, but it's an old saying that, you know, the best place to sandwich a bunch of lies is in between two pieces of truth. Yeah. And uh, could we have that for like a motto for our show? Huh. Uh, no. Do we have to tell them when they're getting the bread of truth yeah. or the? You getting the you getting the lie truth the the lie yeah. meat now. Here's the condiments of deception. It's huh. very hard to grow lie in a laboratory. This is free range lie. Oh, free range lie. Okay. Yeah. Well, here here's one more. If you all uh, right, wars will get worse in the future. Okay, their their claim probably not. Anything is possible, of course. A full blown war between India and Pakistan, for instance, could potentially kill millions of people. Mm-hmm. But so could an asteroid, or perhaps the safest bet, massive storms triggered by climate change. The big forces that push civilization in the direction of cataclysmic conflict, however, are mostly ebbing. Recent technological changes are making war less brutal, not more so. Armed drones now attack targets that in the past would have required an invasion with thousands of heavily armed troops, Mm -hmm. displacing huge numbers of civilians and destroying valuable property along the way. And improvements in battlefield medicine have made combat less lethal for participants. Yeah, that's why you have less deaths but a lot more casualties, you know. Mm-hmm. In the U.S. Army, the chances of dying from a combat injury fell from 30% in World War II to 10% in Afghanistan and Iraq. Although this also means that the United States is now seeing a higher proportion of injured veterans who need continuing support and care. You know, uh, this reminds me, I believe I could be wrong on this. But that when the Russian or when the Germans designed the bouncing Betty uh, personnel mine, mm-hmm. that would actually it would fall up in the air, but it would Jump spring load, yeah. so it'd make sure it get a wider cone of people. Uh-huh. I think its intention was to more to severely injure and not kill. It was like yeah, take people's legs out. Because what happened was for every person injured, it took two or three people sort of consumed with their care. Mm-hmm. So it was more of a force multiplier of taking people out of the game of war mm-hmm. fighting. Um, nor do shifts in the global balance of power doom us to a future perpetual war. While some political scientists argue that an increased multipolar world is an increasingly volatile one, um, uh, that peace is best assured by the predominance of a single hegemonic power, namely the United States, recent geopolitical history suggests otherwise. Relative U.S. power and worldwide conflict have waned in tandem over the past decade. The exceptions to the trend, Iraq and Afghanistan, have been lopsided wars waged by the hegemon, not challenges by up-and-coming new powers. The best precedent for today's emerging world order may be the 19th century Concert of Europe, a collaboration of great powers that largely maintained the peace for a century until its breakdown in the bloodbath of World War I. Now, I think there was a lot of stuff happening in 1848, wasn't it? Those were just internal civil wars. Something when it was like, like Marxist yeah. revolutions everywhere. Mm-hmm. He says, what about China, the most ballyhooed rising military threat of the current era? We'll hear a lot about China. Mm-hmm. Beijing is indeed modernizing its armed forces, racking up double-digit rates of growth in military spending, now about $100 billion a year. That well, is, huh? They have to replace that uh, gas mask for the horse. For the horse. They had, well, no, no. I, I watched this official yeah. film that they did. And yeah. Like all these people are waiting for this. Uh, there was like this nuclear yeah. attack, and then... Associated kind of like a gas mm-hmm. attack, you know. So they yeah. put on, 
some nuclear stuff, and then they put on gas masks, and then they had a, even had a gas mask for the horse. Well, good for them. Yeah. What about for, like, Pyro? He's on his own. Okay. But you're a scientist. You can figure that out. Figure that out. Okay. It says, now here, let me pick up on China here again. It says, uh, this $100 billion a year in in growth is second only in the United States, but it is a distant second. Mm -hmm. The Pentagon spends nearly $700 billion. Hmm. So we spend seven times what China spends. Not only is China a very long way from being able to go toe-to-toe with the United States, it's not clear why I would want to. A military conflict, particularly with its biggest customer and debtor, would impede China's global trading posture mm-hmm. and endanger its prosperity. Since Chairman Mao's death, China has been hands down the most peaceful great power of its time. For all the recent concern about a newly assertive Chinese navy in disputed international waters, China's military hasn't fired a single shot in battle in 25 years. Hmm. That's sort of interesting. Um you know, really, when you think about it, China would be better served conquering us economically. Basically, you know, mm-hmm. buying out our companies and running them and stuff like that. Can I can I share one last one here? Because then we'll come to come to the end of this. Mm-hmm. Um, this one, uh, and there's a few more. I'll challenge people to go look at them on our website uh, for this link for the story. But this last one I'll read is: a more democratic world will be a more peaceful world. Okay, mm-hmm. not necessarily. The well-worn observation, you remember how Bush wanted to spread democracies around the world, and that was the philosophy, Mm -hmm. okay? The well-worn observation that real democracies almost never fight each other is historically correct, but it's also true that democracies have always been perfectly willing to fight non-democracies. In fact, democracy can heighten conflict by amplifying ethnic and nationalistic forces, pushing leaders to appease belligerent sentiment in order to stay in power. Thomas Paine and Immanuel Kant both believed that selfish autocrats caused wars, whereas common people who bear the cost would be loath to fight. But try telling that to the leaders of authoritarian China, who are struggling to hold in check, not inflame, a popular undercurrent of nationalism against Japanese and American historical enemies. Now, see, I don't hear much about that, do you? No. That the Chinese people want to come after us, but the leaders don't? No, it's from... Now maybe From Saudi what I Arabia understand, it's exactly would, the other here. way around. Yeah. I don't know, you know, what, what they're, but, you know, again, this is CFR, so. Uh, public opinion, intentively democratic Egypt, is far more hostile toward Israel than the authoritarian government of Hosni Mark ever was. Mm-hmm. Although being hostile and actually going to war are quite different things. Why then do democracies limit their wars to non-democracies rather than fight each other? Nobody really knows. As the University of Chicago's Charles Lipson once quipped about the notion of a democratic peace, he said, we know it works in practice. Now we have to see if it works in theory. What? (laughs) Very interesting quote. He says, the best explanation is that of political scientists Bruce Russett and John O'Neill, who argue that three elements, democracy, economic interdependence, especially trade, and the growth of international organizations are mutually supportive of each other and of peace within the community of democratic countries. Democratic leaders then see themselves as having less to lose in going to war with autocracies. So, in other words, we're too intertwined with the economies of other democracies. Yeah, we can't. It doesn't make sense. We can't unwind. Yeah. Can't. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And they, you know, the thing I, I said find, the same thing about the economic crisis. 
couple yep. of years ago. All right. Greece can't fail because we're too intertwined. Right. Italy can't fail. Too intertwined. Ireland, Iceland. But what 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 makes it weird for me is if we ever did have like a world war, and I guess you know time before the Lord comes, it probably will. But but until then, what happens now when all of our war machine companies are all multinational? I mean, you used to be able to know that Mercedes would build German stuff, and you'd have you know General Motors build our stuff, and mm-hmm. Mitsubishi build Japanese. Now they're all serving all those markets simultaneously. Yep. Those corporations just firewall and say, okay, that part of the company makes it for that enemy, and this one makes it for that enemy. Could be, I don't know, it could be like DynCorp where weird? they just don't even care and just give them, yeah. give them to people with the expectation they're going to sell them to the other side. Their big thing is to make money. Yeah. You know, regardless look, of I mean, I realize, loyalties. Yeah, yeah, you know, DynCorp says things like, look, I realize that people are shooting each other, but we have a profit margin to, to make. <laughs> well, can we go to, uh, in our last phase here to some emails? Hit me with the email, babe. Fire away. Fire away. Okay. Yay. Thanks. Uh, this is from from Nate. Okay. Uh-huh. This is the son of Chris and Karen, friend of our shows here. Uh-huh. And, and Nate sent an email here. Very interesting. He says, um, Dear Dr. Future, this is about D- DMT in today's episode. Mm. He says, um, this is from the end of May. He says, hey, it's Nate again. I heard from my dad that you guys discussed the drug DMT on today's episode of Future Quake. I wanted to let you know, guys know that I knew something about it from a book I read once. The Whoa. book was called Adam, and it was written by a Christian author named Ted Decker. Have you heard of Ted Decker? Uh, I recognize the name, yeah. Yeah, might be an interesting guest on our show. Mm-hmm. Ted Decker is an author who writes a trilogy of series, the two of which are begun within, with three books in mind. One has four now. These books are allegories about good versus evil and the life of Christ. It's his thrillers that are very strange. Adam is about a mass murderer, which incidentally is what all his thrillers are about to my knowledge, who appears to the investigator trying to catch him. Uh, The investigator realizes it's Adam, and he goes to his partner, who gives him a dosage of the drug DMT. The investigator has a trip, as quoted from the book, and he goes into a strange place. I can't remember much more, but we have the book on hold from the library. I'll send you details when we get it. Another book which I own is called Saint. It's part of the mega series that mentioned earlier and is about two Manchurian candidates that are made to be assassins. Mm-hmm. It's a Christian author. Uh, Saint is one of them. The other, his opponent later in the book, is called Englishman. They have incredible powers to which they can quite literally lift hundreds of huge boulders with their minds. While DMT is not mentioned in the book, there are MK Ultra techniques used uh, mind wipe uh, these two characters in the book. Um, it's called aspartame. <laughs> things like forcing a separate identity. Only in Saints and Englishman's case, their other self is erased completely by design of their handlers by intense heat and cold and drugs. Ted Decker on the surface seems to be a Christian author, yet hides some subtle occult things. I would recommend reading the book Adam to learn more about it. My dad just walked in and told me to mention this to you. <laughs> when I heard of DMT on your podcast the first time, I was able to, one, instantly remember it, and two, be able to remember the book and find the section in which the hero uses it in the book when we went to uh, somewhere after just hearing the episode. And uh, this was Nate. I believe Nate, if it's what I'm thinking of, has actually even talked about us at school, like in class room out, discussions. Man. Um 
He said later, and he says, I also remember a few details about the hallucination the character goes into here. Scary stuff. He's what the, the guy when he had this DMT in the book says he saw checkerboard floors. It's sort of like the inside of a Masonic lodge. Mm-hmm. He doesn't actually see the murderer, but instead sees a small child playing with a doll. The doll has no eyes and has worms going around its head, if I remember right. The kid's face was someone important and close to him, and the murderer was in another room separated by a door. There's more, and it's pretty creepy. And that makes me want to look into it more, just mm-hmm. Nate's description. So thanks, Nate. That's another D&T connection there. Here is... Um, this is Ken, okay? This is Ken. Um, Ken's in Australia, by the way. Mm-hmm. Which we have enough Australian listeners that they ought to be starting Future Quake Australia, I think. Hey, it's that's a good time. idea. Future Quake Australia. Yeah. I think they ought to really mm-hmm. get get themselves together and do that. It says, hey, Dr. Future and Tom. Great listening to you all each week. I can listen while I work at home or in my home business. It's good. Part of the mm-hmm. advantage here. You know, uh, I used to hear a guy on the radio say that his show, he, you know, he has a radio host. He says, the so-and-so show is listed on more, on more radios than any other household appliance. But, you know, we really can't say it now. Now we have competing household appliances doing Future Quake. Yep. Uh, okay, he says, the question... He had a question about the guy with the story, the parable with one talent. You remember that where they one had ten, mm-hmm. five, and one talent? I've only got one talent. It's called sarcasm. No. <laughs> <laughs> well, you don't plant it in the ground. You share it with everybody. Oh, I splash okay. it all over the place. And he had a question about the guy with one talent. He says, if the Lord was questioning his servant as opposed to confirming his servant statement, his Lord then was going on about the bankers. Remember he says, you know, if you could have... Taken this one, at least put it, gotten user even mm-hmm. the bankers, you know, rather than to put it ground. He said, could this be, like, if you believe I'm a crook, meaning the master, why didn't you just put my talent in the hands of crooks, the bankers? That's how he reads that thing. Uh, okay. Okay. He says, sometimes I look at things from a different angle, thinking outside the box kind of stuff. That could be why I like listening to you guys. I think you just have to be have to be a misfit and have terrible disorders to be able to appreciate us, don't you? Yeah. I think that's common of all of us Futurians. Yep. People would worry people about us. People looked at me for any length of time, they'd know I'm not normal. Yeah. So, Ken, you have kindred spirits here, fellow mutants. It says, on 60 Minutes this week, we had that Christian from the States who hates everyone. Westboro Baptist Church guy? I don't It's a Christian from the States who hates everyone, telling us... Aussies are all going to hell. This is well, duh. Just yeah. kidding. <laughs> that That's sounds like it's kind of insane. Sounds like a lot of American Christian leaders. Yeah, it's kind of. This crazy. is because we have several homosexuals in federal politics. In fact, the leaders of the Green plus several others in that party are homosexual. As well, our prime minister is not married to the guy she lives with, and because of that, we're all going to hell. Please pray for us, please. We mm-hmm. pray that they don't go to hell. Today, I listened to you reading out the emails from Thunderbolt. I think you meant Thunderbird, but um, whatever. Thunderbolt. Yeah. Thunderbolt. I like Thunderbolt better. but Yeah, um, and Lightfoot. It says, if we Christians could all see the difference between the person and the sin or sins, love the person, hate the sin. Amen to that, brother. Yeah. Ken. Not because it makes us feel uneasy, but because you don't want to see one sinning hurt themselves. 
It's not all about me, but it's about others. Something that uh, comes across very clearly on Future Quake. Well, thank you, brother. Mm -hmm. We do believe that. We want to rescue the perishing because somebody rescued us. Mm -hmm. You know. Yeah. That brings me to this. People do it over and over and over with me. Yeah. Like the guy with the crash helmet who wanders (laughs) off into the woods. Again. Gosh. You and your crash helmet. Well, he's, he's got a question here at the end. He says, that brings me to this point. Was Sodom and Gomorrah wiped out because of all the population were homosexuals or because of population, whether homosexual or not, accepted homosexuality as a fair and reasonable lifestyle? Don't have an answer to that one either, just a thought. Do you have a thought on it? That was Ken. Well, I don't think it was specifically their homosexual lifestyle, but it was... Or just, yeah, it wasn't just limited yeah, to that kind of lifestyle. Yeah, no, I mean, you know... That, certain, that almost is a symptom of something else going wrong, isn't it? Well, I, I Rather than being so. the main problem? Yeah, it's like, from my limited interaction with homosexuals, usually it's self-hate. Yeah. They hate themselves. Yeah. You know, you don't see young gay guys. It's like a population that's like, mm. the oldest gay dude you're likely to see is like 45. You mean you don't see old ones? Is what you mean? Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. Like you don't, yeah, yeah. It's, a, it's a very young population because they're killing themselves. Yeah, yeah. yeah. They're doing that because I think they hate themselves. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. Yeah. So. And Jesus loves them just as much that's, as He loves any of us. Yeah, man. That well, that's the thing, man. You can go and you can tell them. You can do two things with with anybody. You can go and you can tell them how much, how sinful they are. You could tell them, hey, man. Mm-hmm. Do you know that Jesus loves you? Right, good news. He he just loves you. He loves you so much that he sent a son to die for you. Right. And um, that's something that's going to resonate with, other, with with people, especially people who hate themselves. Mm-hmm. And be like, you know, there's there's this great line uh, in a sermon that I listen to a lot um, where this guy's talking about his salvific experience in the early mm-hmm. 70s. He said he's sitting there. <laughs> he He's sitting there and he's listening to this. Listen to this guy going, and he's, he turns to his ex-girlfriend and says, You told him about me. <laughs> and, of course, he didn't, yeah, you know. Right. It, just, it was just resonating with him. Right. And he said, you know, uh, you know, all those things the pastor said didn't resonate with me except one. You know, he said, you know, he said, uh, you know, the fact that I was going to hell didn't resonate with me. Mm-hmm. I had been to I had been to Vietnam as a special forces guy, and I lived in East L.A. I was already in hell. Mm-hmm. And then he said, he's joking, you know. Mm-hmm. And then he said, the angels. Who wants to go be with the angels? I was a Dodgers fan. Mm. And he said, but the thing that hit me right between the eyes was the fact that he said to me, he said, if you want to have your conscience cleansed, mm-hmm. then you need Jesus right now. Mm-hmm. You need Jesus right now. And he said. Mm-hmm. He said, "Without knowing it, I stood up and went forward." Yeah, and and that's it, man. Yeah. You know, those people, as well as you know, all of us who, uh, uh, all of us who are who are um, under the weight of sin. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's our the it's, shadow of our past can be wiped off. Yeah, all of that stuff you've ever done. And regrets, man. regrets. He can take it out. Mm-hmm. He's not going to be the one to remind us of our regrets. He's the one who wants to take them out and throw them away for us. No, that's that's it, man. There's no more condemnation now in Christ Jesus. Mm-hmm. Man, particularly from him. And yeah. no more needed of ourselves. Yep. Yeah. Where, where are all the people who wanted to stone you, woman? Mm-hmm. They're not here anymore. Well, if they don't condemn you, I don't either. Neither do I. That's right. Yep. Amen. Preach it, bro. 
preaching. It's, it's so awesome. It, it really yeah. is. And know? that's consistent with when Brother Abe, when we shared that email the other day about mm-hmm. him ministering to Muslim people in the ghetto and stuff where he mm-hmm. lives. And uh, he was talking about all the people committing crimes and stuff there. He says, basically, they don't feel like their life has any value. Yeah. And they strike out and they said, the first thing that a Christian needs to tell them is that their life is, has value. Yeah. yeah. And that's what people need to know. You know, we're really good as evangelicals at telling people that there is sin and there's things we've got to turn from. Mm-hmm. And that's true. And that's real. And we've mm-hmm. got to do that. But we also got to know that the reason God went to such effort to give that message is mm-hmm. we are so valuable. He does not want to see our lives wasted. And he doesn't want to see our lives wasted one more day yeah. in something that hurts something that is innately valuable, which he, is each one he of He loves us. us and he wants to he wants to turn us. Right. You know, he wants to turn us away from going to hell, hating ourselves. Mm-hmm. He wants to restore us. He wants to take away the bitterness and put love in there. And uh, he wants to take away the anger and the pain mm-hmm. uh, and, and put peace mm-hmm. and, and love and uh, uh, wholeness, mm-hmm. you know. And that goes for right. that goes for us all. And it goes for the homosexual community. And it mm-hmm. goes for terrorists. Mm-hmm. And it goes for suicide bombers and people who want to blow themselves up, and mm-hmm. the, you know, guys mm-hmm. who want to commit suicide by drinking poison in mm-hmm. uh, India and everybody else. And people who just lied to their mama. Yep. You know, mm-hmm. the whole spectrum. On everybody. It. Yeah. Yep. Everybody. Man, it's a little hard to beat that after that little sermon, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I guess back, Ken, back, back to you. I just. Uh, I would just say that the whole thing with Sodom and Gomorrah, there was a lot of bad stuff going on there. Yeah. And those behaivors were just symptoms of yeah, a culture I don't think it was exclusive. that had lost itself. Probably Sodom and Gomorrah was acting like one of these uh, these little uh, ships. Well, I was thinking one of those little uh, at-sea new countries that we were talking about earlier. That's mm-hmm. basically what happens when, when there's no moral influence, you know, going mm-hmm. on in things. You end up with Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, last email. Okay, coming to the end here. This is Sister Mary uh, sending us a uh, word. Is she proud? No. Oh. Um, but we're going to keep on rolling here if you don't right. mind. Sorry. Um, uh, she says, uh, I enjoy each and every show. I don't listen on the radio, but would love to see the show in syndication. Well, we would too. Mm-hmm. Most importantly, the witty banner of Tom and Mike is very entertaining as well as knowledgeable on a wide variety of topics. I have listened to every one of your archive shows. You know, that's... Wow. You know, at that time, that was like 250 shows or so at that that time. Mm -hmm. You know, amazing how people make that kind of commitment to us. And each and every one was jam-packed with plenty of researchable information. In fact, so many of your shows are so outstanding that it's hard to pinpoint any guest or subject as being more valuable to listen to than the other. Well, that's a real compliment to us. We try to keep either some standard, no matter how high or low, of interestability. Mm-hmm. Kudos and blessings to you both for helping me and my family stay on the narrow path of Christ. Mary, that is such a wonderful compliment. It's just so few words. I mean, yeah, that, it's awesome. That that encourages Preach us to it. keep doing what we're doing. And the snap. Know, if somebody who was competent was doing our show, you know, like for the time I spend preparing for it and stuff, they could do it in a very little time and then do a bunch of other useful stuff. For me, this becomes like a consuming thing, even as primitive as it is. And when somebody mm-hmm. like Mary says like that, it just says, keep on going, bro. Keep hanging in there. You know, mm-hmm. instead of going out there and getting your house fixed or fixing stuff around the house that needs it or whatever, mm-hmm. 
keep researching this stuff and doing a lot of dead ends and things. And mm-hmm. Speaking of dead ends, uh, Merv, would you come in and tell our listeners how to contact us at Future Quake? Future Quake radio broadcasts are archived at www.futurequake.com, suitable for downloading or streaming, as well as other show information. Email Dr. Future and Tom Bionic at drfuture at futurequake.com. That's D-R-F-U-T-U-R-E at futurequake.com. Tell us your name, city, and radio station or internet, and if we can use your name on air. Comments on the show's topics or guests or suggestions for future show topics or guests are most welcome. Dr. Future and Tom will discuss selected emails each week during the radio broadcast. Okay, we're at that dead end, the real one. You got any last words, Brother Tom? None whatsoever, my friend. Well, uh, Futurians, would you pray in a job for Brother Tom? We'd appreciate it. And and also uh, pray for other friends like uh, Lisa and all mm-hmm. our other friends that are praying looking for work mm-hmm. and other things that they need to. And uh, other than that, I think that's it for me. We'll be having us some guests coming up here in a few weeks. And uh, keep sending us your ideas on stories or topics or subjects we need to be looking at. But until next week, we hope your future is always bright. Have a good day. Word. Join us next time as we dare to experience another aftershock of a future quake. quake, quake, quake.